Good morning, Calvary. It is so good to be back with you, and I thank you very much for your prayers. I was very much out of commission last Sunday, and I'm sure many of the Karen students here can relate. So, thank you for your prayers. I am doing much better than last week, and it is my great honor and privilege to bring the Word of God to you today. We started our service with a call to worship from the Word because God's Word is calling us, encouraging us to worship Him. In the middle of our worship songs, we had a prayer of confession because we are not the fancy nobles inviting our King to join us at our table but we are the weary, ragged soldiers in the field coming back to camp, looking for direction and encouragement from our fellow soldiers and from our king. So we come to him um, as weary soldiers and also weary soldiers who have not done the best job following orders throughout the week. And so we come to him asking for forgiveness in our prayer of confession. And we have sung songs that assure us that he is just and faithful to forgive. Christ has defeated every sin, we sang. And normally we end our service with a benediction because as the word calls us to worship, the word also sends us back out into the world with a mission. Today, I want to use another type of prayer before the message. This is a prayer of illumination, not one that we often use in our Protestant circles, and it's not a word that we often use in normal conversation. What is a prayer of illumination? It is a request, our prayer, that the Holy Spirit would open the eyes of our heart so that we can receive the word. Because we can have ears that hear without understanding. We can have eyes that see, but never take it in. And so this is a prayer. Um, It is a written prayer. And in the, going with our past lessons that Pastor Dan has been leading us through, Some people are convicted that they need to do spontaneous prayers only. Some people are convicted that they need to do written prayers only. I am of the conviction that both are beneficial for the church, and so today I'll be bringing a written prayer, something that I've been reflecting on this past week. And this is a preacher's prayer of illumination. All wise Father, the beginning and the end of every truth, You have given us your perfect word that we may be instructed, taught to walk in your ways. Your word is a light unto my feet that makes clear the path to your throne. Today I endeavor to add commentary to the reading of your word. Grant me clarity that I would not obscure the text with mindless rambles. Wisdom that I may discern the words of encouragement from the harmful barbs. Grace that I may speak to my fellow fugitives as one forgiven. Humility that I would see myself not as a king exalted to the platform, but as a servant washing your children's feet. And may your children receive your word with pure delight. May your spirit turn this service into a cool, refreshing stream that sustains them through the week. 
May the light of your holiness convict us of our sins and lead us to repentance. O God of infinite mercy, open every ear, take the scales away from every eye, melt every heart of stone, that your word may enter in and transform us into the image of your Son. In his holy name we pray, amen. And so now I am tasked with adding commentary to the word of God. Before we read the text today, we will be in Romans chapter 15. You have Bibles underneath your pews, not your pews, your chairs. You have Bibles underneath your chairs. If you are using a chair Bible, it's going to start on page 1139. I encourage you to either follow along on the slides or take a Bible out and follow along in the text. Before we get to that text, though, let's take a short road trip through where we have been because we are coming to the very end of Romans. Today, Paul's argument, Paul's logical argument that he started in Romans chapter 1 is going to come to a close in verse 13. After this point, everything else is epilogue. So Paul writes in a very logical, systematic way. Because of this, we need this. And because of that, God did this. And because God did that, we ought to do this. And so we are coming to the end of that stream of thought today. But we started in Romans, the first couple chapters, was talking about our great need Paul starts off by laying our sin bare in front of us. He says, hey, look at all those people outside the church. Look at how rotten they are. And then he twists it and he says, hey, guess what? That's you too. And so he establishes our great need for a savior. But then he shows us the great hope that we have that comes not from our own works, but from faith. Faith in what Christ has already done on the cross. And then he gets into a very important issue for his time. The differences between Jews and Gentiles. How Jewish do you have to be to be a Christian? That's a huge question. And Paul shows us that God still has a plan for the nation of Israel even if he is now accomplishing his mission through the church. And that brings us now to the current section that we are in. What does this faith-driven life look like? If we have acknowledged our great need, if we have placed our faith in a great Savior, and if we have recognized that we are part of God's mission here on earth, how do we live out that mission? And that's what we have been looking at over the past couple weeks. And we are closing up this series of how do we relate with others? How do we relate with others? How do we relate with our government? How do we relate with the people we disagree with? And of course, you guys are good Christians. You don't disagree with anyone in this room, right? I just learned today that some people in here prefer pineapple on pizza. I will not convict them. <laughs> I'll let the Holy Spirit do that. But we are to live at peace with them, and we need to be unified. 
Now, if you've been paying attention to the news recently, you've heard about a resurgence of revivals. Well, I got some good news because this text today is going to share with us the secret to having a revival right here in Bristol, PA. It is going to show us how we can turn the hearts of people, not us, the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit can turn hearts back to God. So I hope that you are paying attention to this text because number one, it is the end, it is the climax of Paul's argument that he's been establishing for this entire book, and it is also the secret to revival. So pay attention because this is big. We are now going to read Romans chapter 15. If you would please follow along in the text. Romans chapter 15, starting in verse 1. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you. In order to bring praise to God, for I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again, it says, rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him, the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is the word of God. Everything else from here on out is just commentary. We begin this chapter by closing off this section on living with the weaker brother. And this is your reminder that verses and chapters are not divinely inspired. They were placed there for our benefit. If it was up to me, I probably would have moved the chapter marker for 15 down a couple of verses because we're kind of wrapping up what's happened in chapter 14. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up, for even Christ did not please himself. And I think that this is such an important point. As we are trying to live with people who have different convictions than us, 
that we are not trying to live with them in a way that makes us happy, but we are trying to live with them in a way that builds them up. We are, Christians are to have this others-focused mindset. And that is so crucial when it comes to church unity. Because we cannot be unified with each other if our main concern is fulfilling our own preferences. And so we have to be willing to sacrifice our preferences just as Christ was willing to sacrifice for us. Paul gives us this example. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it was written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. In its original context in the Psalms, this is King David saying to the Lord, Lord, I am being insulted because I am following your ways. But now Jesus is taking this and he's like, okay, now let me show you guys, because I am the Lord. And the insults that were meant for you guys, I am going to take them upon myself. Church, your king, your all-powerful creator of the universe, the one who sustains all things with his hands and his breath, has said, I am going to be insulted for your account. I am going to go low so that you may be risen up. Our king is showing us this prime example that it is not self-exaltation, it is not the pursuit of self-glorification that makes a fulfilling life, but it is the others-focused lifestyle that is really going to build this church and accomplish God's mission here on earth. Paul then has a few things for us about Scripture. And he wants us to have this Scripture because he wants us to have hope. In verse 4 we read, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Latch on to that word, hope, because it's going to keep coming back throughout this passage, and it is so crucial, not just to your own personal life and your own personal journey, but also to our church life and to our evangelism. So, he wants us, Paul wants us to be rooted in the Scripture, to know the Scripture. Why does he want us to know the Scripture? Because it is going to produce in us encouragement and hope. It is going to lay the foundation for our unity as a church. And so one of the questions is, why gather for a sermon? Well, one of the reasons we gather for a sermon on Sunday mornings is so that we can receive that encouragement and that hope. So that we can be unified around one text, one mind, one voice glorifying God. Whether we're gathering here in person or online, 
but we want to be engaged with this text. We need to know this text because it was written for our benefit. And I love how Paul does this. First, he quotes the scripture, and then he tells us, hey, this was all written for your benefit. And then what does he do next? He's going to quote more scripture because it is when we read what God has already done and when we read what God has already said, we are better able to see where he is going in the future. If we worship the God who split the Red Sea, if we worship the God who provided manna from heaven, if we worship the God who fed the 5,000 and raised Jesus from the dead, then yes, he can help us make rent this month. Then yes, he is the God who can help us afford groceries. He is the God who can help us through the exams we're going through. He is the God who can help us deal with the boss that we have to deal with. If our God is the God who has worked miracles in the past, and if he is the same God today, then we can rely on him. And the way we know that is by knowing his word, letting his word dwell richly in us so that it can keep coming back to encourage us and produce the hope that unifies. So scripture, it also says it produces endurance. Now, if scripture has to produce endurance in us, that means that there's a trial that we have to endure. Scripture does not make life easy. It does not remove the storm from our lives, but it strengthens us as we go through the storm. And what is the purpose of this endurance? Let's look at verse six. Let's see, I'm gonna start in verse five, actually. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had the attitude of mind that it's others first, not myself. May you have that mind towards each other. Verse six, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The purpose of this endurance is that the church may come together and be unified around the Son. When we join together in singing and we stand up and with one voice join in the same songs, we are proclaiming the truth of God and saying, yes, I believe this. I believe my God is worthy of all praise. I believe that Christ is the cornerstone of my faith. I believe that all creatures of my God and King will worship him. Yes, Jesus is our firm foundation. So our singing together, our gathering together on Sundays is a sign of that. Now those online might feel that this is a little bit harder because you're separated by miles and by the camera. But it is not necessarily the location. There is no replacing being in person and feeling the warmth of fellowship in person. But it is about that fellowship and that relationship. So right now, I want to try to bridge the gap between the online community and the in-person community. So some of you already have them out, but I want everyone to take out your cell phone. Cell phone out, everyone. We are about to use this tool for the Lord. Because relationships are about communication and about connection. 
Right now, there is someone in your life that you care about that needs an encouraging word or needs someone to check up on them. Maybe there's someone on the online stream that you wish you could see them here in person. Text them right now. Text someone you care about, someone who is not here with us right now in this room. Text them and say, hey, I was thinking about you, or hey, how's it going? Or even better, hey, do you wanna grab lunch sometime soon? Let's take this technology that we have and let's bridge that gap. Let's build that tighter community. And I encourage you, throughout the week, when you are thinking of this person or other people, reach out to them. Because even though we have social media and it seems like we're so connected, we are lonelier than ever. Part of it is because we're looking at these pictures on social media going, wow, everyone else has it all together, but what about me? So be the person who's reaching out and bridging that gap. And that's gonna be one of those things that really helps build our community is when we are caring about each other, caring enough to even reach out and communicate. Okay, so now that you've texted the person, just don't, don't go into the doom scroll on Facebook, please. We still have two more points to go through in this service. So the first point of this message that we're getting here is that in order to have that endurance, in order to have that hope, we need to be unified with each other here in the church. Next up, Paul is gonna take us on a journey and say, okay, now, not only do we need to be unified as believers, but we also need to give this hope to everyone outside the church. In his day and age, he is presenting it as Jews and Gentiles. Because the first question that the early church is asking is, um, are we Jews or are we something else? And when Paul was writing to the church in Rome, it seems like he's writing primarily to Jewish believers. And he's saying to them, hey, it's not just you. This message is meant to go out to the whole world. It doesn't matter your skin color. It doesn't matter your social class, your gender, or what you do, what you don't do. This message is available to everyone. And he's saying, so, those Gentiles that you've been talking about, this message is for them too. So how do we get this message to them? Before we go on to that, I do wanna say that in order for us to be unified with each other and in order for us to be unified around Christ, there is one very important thing that we need to know, and that is who God is. Because if we are not worshiping the God of the Bible, then we are worshiping a God of our own making. And a God of our own making is gonna be a weak God. I was reading a book recently by Bob Coughlin, and he used this example. He used his son in the example, but I wanted to contextualize it for us so we can understand the importance of worshiping God for who he is, not who we want him to be. But if I was to say, isn't Matt just the best? Isn't Pastor Matt just the best? Most of you go, yeah, yeah, let's, let's give a round of applause. Pastor Matt is the best. And then, if I continued on to say, I mean, just look at those legs. That man can power lift a defensive linebacker. No QB sneak can stop him. 
He can score touchdowns all day long. You would look at me and you would go, Dan, that's not Pastor Matt. I go, what do you mean? I saw him on TV. And you're like, no, no, Pastor Matt, he's, he's really wise, loving and caring. He's so involved with his church here, like at Calvary. I see him every week. Oh, I, I always see him on TV. And you're like, Dan, I think we're talking about different mats. Okay? Now, what if we came and we did the same thing with God's son? I came up to God and I said, God, Jesus is so amazing. I prayed for a Corvette, and not only did he give me a Corvette, he gave me a Lamborghini. God, your son is so amazing. Do you see how good he is at playing Battleship? He's so amazing at board games. And God would look at me and go, we're not taking, talking about the same Jesus, are we? Because the Jesus that I sent you came to preach the gospel. And he came to die in your place on a cross. And if I went and I said, a cross, what's that? How do you think it would feel if I told the father, hey, that sacrifice that your son made, I don't even know anything about it. How would that make God feel? How would that, what does that say about my knowledge of Jesus? In order to be unified together and in order to be unified around Christ, we need to know Christ. We need to know the God we are worshiping. And this is so crucial because we don't want to come to the pearly gates of heaven and then look at God and say, you know what, I actually, I, I think I prefer my own version of you because God is who he is and he's the one that we're going to live with for all eternity. And the question is, will we delight in who he is? Okay, so will we delight in who he is? And now, will those outside the church delight in who he is? The answer is not everyone will delight in who God is. But there are some out there right now, there are some people outside of this church who belong in this church, who God is calling to this church. And these are people in your lives, they go to your jobs, they go to your schools, they might be in your very own family. And God is currently working on their hearts. There is a knocking at the door. And what they need is they need to see the unity of the church wrapped around the sun. Let's see what Paul has to say about this, this hope to the nations. So he says to us, accept one another then, in verse 7, Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God, for I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And church, most of us here today, we are the recipients of that grace. We are Gentiles and we get the benefit of this passage. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again, it says, rejoice you Gentiles with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him, the Gentiles will hope. The hope is not in us. The hope is not in our works. The hope is in Christ. 
and being unified with Christ, being one with Christ. Those references we read, if you want them in order, they are 2 Samuel 22.50 and Psalm 18.49. They're the same thing. Deuteronomy 32.43, Psalm 117.1, which we read this morning in our um, call to worship, and Isaiah 11.10. These are proof that God has always intended to bring the Gentiles into his family. One of the temptations when we are interpreting Scripture is to put a divide between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament God is a harsh God. He's a mean God. He's a vindictive, powerful, power-hungry God. And the God of the New Testament is so loving and kind, he would never hurt anyone. If that is your mindset, I would either warn you or encourage you about the book of Revelation because it does not leave any room for that interpretation. In fact, I would say that the God of the Old Testament is the same God in the New Testament. And the King Jesus of the Old Testament is the King Jesus in the New Testament, is the King Jesus we will get for all of eternity. And so God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And his plan was never to exclude the entire world from his plan of salvation. His plan from the very beginning was to bless all the nations through the seed, which is Jesus Christ. So our role in this is we get to make disciples who make disciples. And one of the first steps in that is evangelism, the preaching of the word. But I have something very important here. I think that this is something that Paul has in mind too when he is writing this passage. But that our evangelism, the actual speaking of the words of the gospel, is not the end of evangelism. For as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if I do not have love, I am just a clanging gong a loud symbol just making noise. This is an illustration of me when I was in middle school. Believe it or not, I was very obnoxious. I liked to talk a lot. And I had this zeal without knowledge. And I had a friend who did not believe like I believed. Either he did not believe as much as I believed or he just didn't believe at all. And so what I would do every day, I'm just boom, gospel, boom, gospel, boom, gospel. And one day he looks at me and he says, you know, I used to believe in God until you kept talking. And I was like, oh, I guess I'm planting seeds. I didn't know. I didn't understand. I was a clashing gong, a clanging cymbal, just making noise. And no one wanted to be around that. But we still need to preach the gospel. I mean, Paul even wrote in a previous chapter, how will they hear if we do not send a preacher? We need to send missionaries so that people can hear the gospel because hearing the word is important. But it is not the end of our evangelism. Because if we want our evangelism to be effective, we need two very important things. We need the Holy Spirit to work in their hearts, but we also need the hope that comes through unity. 
We read in John chapter 17. This is such an important passage. I believe I've read it here from the pulpit before. And I'm going to do it again because it's so important. We read in John chapter 17. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer for us. The first verse he lays out what eternal life is in verses 1 through 3. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. That they know you. That they know you. Eternal life is knowing God. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And then a little bit further on, we read in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word. So he's not praying just for the disciples who are with him there before the garden. He's praying for us. This prayer is explicitly for those who believe in the gospel because of the message that the apostles have shared. That they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so that they also may believe in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Do we want revival, church? Do we want the world to believe that God sent his son, Jesus Christ? Then, church, may we fulfill this prayer. May we be one as Jesus and the Father are one. Do we want people to believe the word of God? Then we need to exhibit that unity in our church. Will we go on then to verse 13, back in Romans chapter 15. Here it reads, May the God of hope Fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. If we want to seal the message of evangelism, if we want unbelievers to come and know that Jesus Christ has been sent by the Father, then we need to be a church that is overflowing with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I really want to dig into this verse because it really, it just wraps up everything. This This is the final verse of Romans, at least the message of Romans. Everything else after this is epilogue. This is what everything has been building up to. The entire argument has been coming here. And it's kind of, it's a summary of every point we've made so far. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. Oh, the God of hope. This is not the God of war. This is not the God of good works. This is not the God of pleasing him by giving money. This is the God of hope. 
We have to know the God of hope to understand he's a God who gives hope. May he fill you with all joy and peace. He doesn't fill us with self-satisfaction. He doesn't even fill us with happiness. But he fills us with joy and peace. Oh, joy and peace. Those things that help me through trials. Those things that are put on best display when they are tested. When endurance brings about the look at these. Looking at these, when we go through trials, I want to say that the joy and peace that God is producing in us, it is not a fake joy and peace. The last thing the church needs is for Christians who wear masks. We don't need people who come in and say, everything is fine. I'm good, God is good, he's given me a life I can't complain about. I'm just so wonderful, everything's so wonderful in God's world and creation. When really inside, you're torn, you're worried, you're anxious, how can we pray for one another? How can we encourage one another if we do not know what's going on in our lives? So we do not need a fake peace but we need a real peace, the type of peace that when someone on the outside looks in and goes, haven't you noticed that the economy is crumbling around us? Haven't you noticed that these interest rates are just soaring sky high? I can't make my mortgage payments anymore. How in the world are you still hopeful? And you turn around and you say, because the God who parted the Red Sea the God who gave manna from heaven, the God who fed the 5,000, and the God who raised Jesus from the dead is also going to raise me from the dead. Praise be to him. He is greater than this economy. Praise be to the God who is greater than our heartaches. Yes, I still feel it. Yes, I still need to cry out. But oh boy, do I have a hope that endures. It is trusting in him, trusting in the God who gives us hope, the God of hope, trusting in him and not ourselves that leads to unity. It is not our religious works. It is not even our strongly held convictions. These things, the things that we do and the things that we believe will not pay the entry fee to heaven. For those things cannot cancel sin. Only the life, death, and resurrection of Christ can cancel our payment of death that we owe on account of sin. We're not gonna get to Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, did I not correct the weaker brother in your name? He's gonna say, that wasn't what I asked you to do. I asked you to believe. I asked you to believe in the God of hope. God's character is already set. We do not have the liberty to create God in our own image. And so we are faced with a challenge. Either we are going to dig into the scriptures and we are going to know the God of the Bible or we are going to say, we don't need that. I can know God just in my heart. And in that, you eat the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil knowing good and evil better than God, and you recreate him in your, to your own image. 
But let me tell, just warn you that if you go to create God in your own image, if you shy away from those parts of Scripture that make you uncomfortable, then you are going to end up with a weak God. The prophet Habakkuk puts this so beautifully when talking about the idols in his day and age. In Habakkuk 2, verses 18 to 20, we read, What prophet is the idol when its maker has carved it? Or an image, a teacher of falsehood. For its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, awake, to a mute stone, arise. And that is your teacher? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all inside it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. The God who is, the God who was, and the God who is to be is sitting in his holy temple. He is who he is, and what we believe about him does not change who he is. And if we are going to be unified here in the church, we need to be unified personally with him. And if we are unified personally with him, then that, he is going to fill us with joy and peace. He is gonna fill us with that overflowing hope And if we have that overflowing hope, then the unbelievers can look into the church and say, I want that. I want that hope that they have. Now, not all the unbelievers are going to say that. Many unbelievers are going to ridicule Christians for believing in an invisible guy in the sky. And that's okay. They will have the relationship with God that they will have. But for those who will listen, we need to preach but then we also need to demonstrate the overflowing hope in our own community so that when they step out of the broken households that they have, they don't step into another one and go, if I wanted to hear people arguing about carpet, I could have just gone home and listened to mom and dad. But we need to be a place where people step in and they say, I have never felt so encouraged. I have never seen people so loved. I have never seen this type of selflessness, this selflessness, this type of others-focused lifestyle. What? You're doing this because that's what your Lord Jesus Christ did? Can I have this in my life too? Our evangelism is, it's sealed by what happens here in the church. The God of the Bible, he is a very mighty God. He is a God worth hoping in. He is a God who doesn't let you down because he has shown us through his son, Jesus Christ, that even if we face death, that is still not an obstacle for him because he can raise the dead. And if he can raise the dead, he can provide for us in our present means, in our times. And if he does not give us what we desire, we can trust in his wisdom that he knows something else. We can trust in his wisdom that he will provide something even better through all of eternity, not just for 60, 70, 80 years here on earth. So church, What does this hope, what does this unifying hope 
look like in our day-to-day lives. And you know what's great about the Apostle Paul? He's already spelled it out for us in his arguments. We went over this a few months ago. I love expository preaching, but one of the problems is we spend so much time in one book that we might forget something we went over a month or two ago. So I want to remind us of Romans chapter 12. We're going to read the whole thing. All of Romans chapter 12, and I want you to think about it in the mindset that this is what our overflowing hope is going to look like in everyday living in our church. Romans chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, Do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and those members do not all have the same function, so in Christ Jesus, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others." We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophecy, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. And might I say here, give encouragement, especially to those who are teaching right now. Then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Notice you can, you can also study this passage through what he doesn't say. There's not rage in here. There's not judgment. There's not condemnation. There's not the slamming of the fist going, ah, you sinner. You put pineapple on pizza. <laughs> That's not in here. No, this is a cheerful, an endurance, a hopeful message Verse 9, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope. Be joyful in hope, like what we've been going over today. Patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. I think that this is a very good guiding principle for this hope, overflowing hope living. Verse 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. 
for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be, over, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Church, you know what this means? This means that when you're on Facebook or Instagram or TikTok and you happen to see that person posting the thing, it is not your holy conviction to go and say, you're wrong! My friends, do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. As far as it is possible for us, live at peace with everyone. And that's what the church needs to look like. When we are living in unity with one another, we are setting aside our own desires and our own preferences so that we can seek each other's goods. We are trying to, as best as we can, to live at peace with everyone. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about all of us being unified around the Son. And then when we are unified around the Son and who the Son truly is, then the God of hope produces in us joy and peace, an overflowing joy and peace that is able to endure even the fiercest of trials. It's not a hope that we can force. It's not a mask that we can put on and let me tell you, unbelievers can smell a phony Christian. They can smell a fake mask from a mile away, and they can look at it and go, that's not true, that's not sincere. So we need to know God. We need to know the God who parted the Red Sea, who gave manna from heaven, who fed the 5,000, who raised Jesus from the dead, and who is transforming our lives right here, right now. We need to know him so that he can produce in us a sincere hope that stands up to whatever this world throws at it. And we also need to make sure, make very sure, that we are worshiping the God of the Bible and not a God of our own making. Because when we form God in our own image, we are setting ourselves up for failure. The God who gives you whatever you want, well, you're gonna stop believing in him when you don't get whatever you want. The God who rewards your good works with only good things, well, you're gonna be really disappointed when you've been volunteering with the food pantry and you've been volunteering with Code Blue and you've been volunteering on Sunday mornings in church and then all of a sudden something bad happens to you. Flat tires happen to good people, okay? If we make God in our own image, he is a God that is worth falling away from. He's a God that's worth disbelieving. But when we turn to the God of the Bible, we are met with an overwhelming picture of beauty and might that can withstand is greater than anything in this world. So church, I encourage you to put your faith in him, to hope in the one who raised Jesus from the dead. And if you are here today and you don't have this hope that I am talking about, let me share it with you. Because each and every one of us is going to face a problem. All of us are on this roller coaster called life and none of us get off the ride alive. 
unless the Lord returns and calls us home, every single one of us will end this journey in the grave. And that's bad news, but the gospel is good news because Jesus, God's son, stepped down into the manger. He became a baby, lived the perfect life so that he would be a spotless sacrifice, worthy of being sacrificed on the cross, not for his sins, but for your sins and my sins. He died on that cross, appeasing the penalty, appeasing the wrath of God. But then three days later, he rose from the grave, giving hope to all who believe. Not those born in a specific country, not those born to a specific social class, but all who believe may have the hope of the resurrection in their lives so that they may delight in God forever. And my prayer today is that you would delight in the God of hope, that you would be unified around the God of the Bible and not a God of your own making, and that you would live an others-focused life, that your life would be overflowing with a hope that unifies. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for sending your son that we might have the hope of eternal life. For without him, there is nothing that we can do to conquer the grave. But through Christ, all things are possible. And Lord, we know that there are many things weighing heavy on our hearts today. There are trials that we are going through. Lord, I pray that your word would produce in us the endurance that leads to hope, and that hope would overflow in this church, and that all who come in would see that hope and say, I want that. So Lord, may the message of your gospel be approved by the fruits of the Spirit here at Calvary and in your church around the world. And I pray that your people would join with one voice and one mind, glorifying you for all eternity. In your son's name we pray, amen.